At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I would encourage you to take it out and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning in verse 26, so I'll give you a moment just to turn there. Uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians the past several weeks, and today we are concluding our series uh, in 1 Corinthians. So we'll finish uh, chapter 1 today. And uh, while you're turning there, one of the things that this sermon series has challenged me to do is to try, once again, especially based on last week, as we look at like what the world determines as foolish, God sees as wise, and what God sees as wise, the world sees as foolish. I think that's the same thing. And, and I wanted to just, because I've been in this Christian world for so long, I've been a, a Christian for most of my life now, that sometimes it's easy for me to, to think like a Christian and act like a Christian and all that. And sometimes it's hard for me to connect with someone that might not think like me. And so uh, this week I've done a deep dive in trying to get into some of the secular uh, philosophers uh, that have written uh, over the years, some of uh, some Nietzsche and Karl Marx and some of those others, um, and trying to just get to the point of like, what's the big deal? Like, how is it that people can live their lives with a secular theology or secular ph- philosophy that says that they don't need God? And one of the things that I learned is that for over 2,000 years now, the world of academia uh, and secular philosophy have been very critical of the Christian faith. I mean, that's not science. I mean, that's not rocket science. We, we know that if it's secular philosophy, they, they want to define life and the meaning and purpose of life apart from anything that has anything to do with a God. That somehow, if we just had more knowledge, then we could evolve to the point of where we ourselves become God and we can fix all the ills of the world by just being smarter. So if we just had more education, then everything would go away. And what, what's crazy about some of this is that many of these secular philosophers claim that Christianity is pure foolishness, that it's nonsense compared to the learnedness of the academy. Karl Marx, a German philosopher, stated this. He says, religion is the opiate of the masses. What he's saying is is, as though that religion is a drug that dulls people from the reality of actually dealing with reality. That, that we just want to put band-aids on things and we just want to believe things so that we, we feel better even though we can't rationalize them through. Go, he goes on to say that, that religion is a crutch for people that are too lazy to deal with or are afraid of reality. So the question I, I pondered this week, is Christianity a crutch? Is Christianity a crutch? Is it something that we have, as as humans, have developed and made up on our own to make us feel better? Because our minds can't deal with, like, the problem of evil. Like, why why is there evil in the world? Well, we could fix evil if we could all just be smart enough. If we knew more, then we could fix evil. Uh, No, that's not what the Bible says. Right? We can't fix evil. 
in those things. So is Christianity a crutch? I read a really good article this week by Rich, Rick Thiessen, and this is some of the things that he, he said in that article, which I thought was, was thought-provoking. He says, he says, Christianity can be a crutch, but it depends on how you define it. Okay, we, we've got to understand defining the crutch. And he, first of all, he says, yes, Christianity is, is a crutch in this sense, if we understand a crutch to be an artificial or needless prop. If Christianity is artificial or needless prop, um, then he's saying that's not what it is, but some see it as that. When Christianity, and this is what he says, he says, some Christians whose faith is a cop-out and then they cover their confusion, insecurity, ignorance, and failed relationships with church speak. They treat their faith like a drug to make themselves feel better without really ever considering its larger implications. Therefore, these people place the importance on the beliefs and behaviors of Christianity that we call religion, then they devalue the relational aspect of true Christianity. In essence, what he's saying is there are some people inside the church that use Christianity like a drug, right? That it's, it's not real faith, but they feel bad in the world. And sometimes they can come into this place and, man, I feel better when I go to church. I sing and I feel better because I'm around other people. And so and not that I really have faith, but I want to make my life about following a bunch of rules, and so I propped up my own life on something that is false. In that sense, if Christianity is a crutch, that's bad. But he goes on and he says, if Christianity, if what we mean by Christianity being a crutch is that the crutch is something used for support or reassurance, then by all means, Christianity is a crutch. And he goes on and he talks a little bit more better. Like if we use the crutch as defined in a negative way, then we're never going to get to the point of, of true Christianity. But then he goes on and he says in the thing, he says, if I break my leg, a crutch is not a sign of weakness, but the crutch is the cure that helps me get healthy once again, right? And so if we as believers and we see have this understanding that the deepest needs in the world are things like loneliness, sadness, depression, guilt, wonderment about the purpose and meaning of life. If we ever, if we ever struggle with those things and we want to know answers and we come to test Christianity, we see that it's not a crutch in the sense of, of, of needless propping up, but it is the cure, then it should be embraced, Right? So by all means, that Christianity becomes the cure for what ails all of humanity, then it should be embraced. He even says this. He says, to condemn Christianity for being a solution to these universal needs is like condemning the use of food because it satisfies hunger. Right? So food is the cure for hunger. And if we were to go and we were to say, no, no, that's silly. Food is not the cure for hunger. You just have to think more. Then your belly will be full, right? Just go read more and then you'll be fine. No, 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 that's silly and foolish. If you're hungry, we know that the cure for hunger is food. So go eat, right? In a similar way, if we know that Christianity is the cure. If Jesus is, really is the answer to what ails us, what hurts us, what harms us, then we should not only believe him, we should embrace him. And we should not think that that is foolish. 
So today, as we continue our series and end our series entitled Divided, as we're looking at how the world is divided, and Paul is writing to you believers in the city of Corinth who have embraced the faith of Christ but, have, but live in a world where worldly wisdom is prized above all things. And sometimes that influence of the world has found its way into the church, and now the church, that we see that there are divisions. So Paul has been writing this letter to help believers maintain unity in the midst of a divided world. And when we get to this idea of wisdom and power, that was pervasive in the culture of the time, and they defined it a lot, lot differently. So today, what we're going to, the question that we're going to seek to answer Is God's wisdom and power truly greater than worldly wisdom or human wisdom? Is God's wisdom and power truly greater than human wisdom? This is what we're going to hope to see as we walk through this passage today. And as we do, I want us to consider two things. Uh, There are two truths I want us to consider. First, I want us to consider whom God saves. And second, I want us to consider how God saves consider how God saves. And we're going to look in uh, verse 26 in just a second. As we see that Paul is helping these believers really just wrestle with the fact of saying what the world says is wisdom and a value is really folly in God's eyes. So reject that and instead embrace, embrace the truth and the power that comes to us only through Christ. So first, let's consider whom God saves, beginning in verse 26. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What I love about Paul as he's writing this letter is he, he, he strikes a great balance between saying hard things but always doing it in love. Right? You, you know that as, as, as a pastor, as a shepherd of people, as an apostle, he's got a massive responsibility as they're establishing the, the beauty in, in the, um, the community of the church. So he's got an immense responsibility that he's empowered through the Holy Spirit to do so. But as he's doing so, we don't see him always come. He doesn't come with a heavy hand, right? And here we see it again. He calls them brothers, realizing he's going to say some harsh things, but he's, he's couching it in relationship, right? It's, it's one thing for someone to come to you and say a hard thing that you don't know, right? Most of the times it's dismissive. Right? You can just, oh, that person's crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. But if your mom or dad comes to you and they're like, hey, I got to tell you some hard thing. Son or daughter, listen. Right? When they do that, like, you have that relationship so you know that you can trust what they're saying. And this is what Paul is, is doing here. He's saying, brothers, listen. And then he goes on and he, he wants to appeal because they were caught up in rational inter, in intellectual pursuits. Paul appeals to that by saying the word consider. He wants to give them an exercise of the mind, saying, since you're so caught up in all of this thinking and this rationalization and trying to find wisdom of the world, I want you just for a moment to use your brain to consider this, to consider once again who God saves. Go back to the beginning of your salvation. Be reminded of the purpose of your life and the direction of your life and where you're supposed to go. So consider 
And what are they to consider? They are to consider their calling. What Paul wants to remind them is of the work of God in their lives. To think, for them to spend moments thinking about the work of God and the power of God in their salvation. Paul wants them to reflect upon and remember how they became Christians. That it was the power of God through the work of Christ that makes all the difference in their lives. It wasn't through an intellectual pursuit that they became believers. It wasn't because they were good. The origination of their salvation did not begin in themselves. Right? Their salvation began outside of themselves through God, through the work of Jesus, and through Jesus' work, now there is this call that goes on their lives, not based in who they are or what they did, but it was based on the good pleasure of God to save them. And the same is true for you as well. Your salvation is not hinged upon what you think or what you do, but it's in whom you believe. And that belief that you even have was not prompted from yourself, but it was a gift of God. It was the call of God in your life that transforms you from the world of darkness to the world of light. It was all God's work in your life. This calling was the work of God. So he goes on and he says, like you did nothing. This did not originate in you, but it was birthed in the heart of God. And it was by his good pleasure that he saved you. And then he goes on, he reminds them of who they were before Christ. That they didn't possess any of the qualities that the world holds in high esteem. He says they were not wise, they were not powerful, they were not of noble birth, they were nobodies, they had nothing. The world looked down on them because they were uneducated, they were weak, they were of the lower class. And when God called them, all they did was simply believe. They did nothing. They didn't do the work of their salvation. Before they come to know Christ, they were nothing. They were weak, they were helpless, they were hopeless. And when God called them, they simply believed. And these believers had gone through a time where they had forgotten their experience and they began seeking human wisdom so that they could exalt themselves over each other inside of the church. That if I had more letters after my name, that I am more prized in the community of believers. And Paul is saying, that has nothing, that has no part to do with the church. And we may be here, you may be here and you're like, man, those silly Corinthians. Shame on them. How can they allow the things of the world to influence inside the church? They have the Bible, right? Well, they didn't have the Bible. They had the letter from Paul. They had the Old Testament. They had all, how could they, how could they miss what God is calling them to? I, I want us to understand that we should not be so quick to pass judgment upon the Corinthians because it's so easy for philosophies and, and things of the world to infiltrate our minds and to influence us so that we live in a way that is actually in contradiction to the word of God. I want to speak to our young people for a, a second because I think that this is a great example of influences of the world impacting our lives. Do you know what it means for a young, and this is rhetorical, uh, do you know what it means to be successful in the mind of a young person today? If, if a young person were to say, I'm successful if this, do you know what they would say? Nope. Followers. Right? 
Young people, as they become teenagers and all that, the most important thing is to have followers, right? Social media. They want to be a, a, a social media influencer. And what we see is these kids watch these social media things where they see kids that are their age driving Teslas and Hummers and Lamborghinis and all this other stuff because what they're doing is they're filming their lives. They're filming their, filming their day-to-day lives. And I, you need to know this too. What you watch on those social media platforms, they're all commercials. They're just couched commercials in a different way. Right, so you got these social media influences that are living their best life and they're trying to show you this perfectness of, of life so that you will buy the things that they buy, that you'll wear the clothes that they wear, that you'll think the way that they think and that you'll think what they think is cool, you think is cool and it so much influences our life, right? So adults, you're not off the hook either because you know we are also on social media and I don't know about you, but if if my social media showed my full life, you'd be very disappointed, right? There's this persona of perfection that people try to portray out there of their life through social media. They don't take the bad pictures. They only take the right picture and they'll take 75 different pictures and they'll add six and seven different filters onto them before they post them. So you don't actually see real life, you see fake life. And why do we do that? Because somehow, someone, somewhere told us that a happy life looks like this. The success looks like this. I want to share with you a story of the damaging effects of social media on young people. This is a story that I read in the Gospel Coalition article a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago. It was a story of a young woman. When she was a, a teenager, a young teenager, maybe 12 or 13, her parents gave her an iPhone because she'd wanted one forever. She's like, mom, dad, I need an iPhone, I need an iPhone, I need an iPhone. So she got an iPhone. And her parents loved her. She grew up in a Christian home and all of that. Her parents had great love for her, great support for her. And they gave her this phone and they didn't realize the access they were giving her. And so this young lady, she, young girl, she starts getting on social media and she's um, watching all of these things, all of these videos and all these people and following this person, following that person. And then as she begins a little bit older into her, her mid-teenage years, she begins to question like her life and she begins to question her identity. And so she goes to the social media and she sees that social media presents being a woman in this way. To be feminine means to, to look like this and to do this and to do that. And in her heart, she was saying, well, I'm not really that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't like that. Maybe that's not me. And then she would go and she would look at how, how social media portrays being a man. And she's like, well, I'm not that. And so I, I'm not that and I'm not that. What am I? And the, the, the article goes on to say that she began looking at other social media things with this question, and it took her on a journey to confusion. It wasn't until later on in uh, her, her, I think it was her sophomore year or junior year in high school, that she actually told her parents. She's like, Mom and Dad, I, I, I don't know what I am. And they with great wisdom, didn't seek to step in and be like, you should not have done all this stuff. They weren't condemning towards her. Instead, they came alongside their daughter in love and said, thank you for allowing us to know where you're hurting. And through the course of time, they began to talk through it and began to pray through it. And this young girl, by the time that she was 22, had come to know Christ and come to understand her identity as a woman, as a gift from God 
And now she's living with her family and her own kids and she is experiencing the joy of life. But I want you to understand that this generation is under assault. There's images and there's messages that they're bombarded with that are telling them, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, you need to do this, you need to be this, you need to look like this. And if we are not, as parents, coming alongside our kids, helping them understand what God has designed for them, like I'll, I'll guarantee you, I guarantee you, your children are more influenced by, by their electronics than they are by the word of God. Do your kids spend hours on end like flipping pages of their Bible, scrolling through the Bible saying, oh, that's a good verse. I'm going to like that. I'm smashing that like button. I'm subscribing to this. No, they spend their lives liking and subscribing and doing this to all kinds of other things that are influencing them. And I'm not, I'm not anti-social media. I'm not. But I want you to understand that... that <laughs> What the Corinthians were going through is their culture had a prize that they were chasing after. Our culture has a prize that it's chasing after. And that prize goes against what God calls us to. Okay, The cause of Christ does not say come to the cross and make much of yourself. No, the call of Christ is the call to come to the cross and die. And that's why he says here, he says, you were not called, not because, of you, because you were wise according to the worldly standards. You were not powerful. You were not of noble birth. Those are the things that society elevated. But he says, you were chosen. You were, you were weak. You were frail. I chose what was foolish according to the world, to shame the wise. I chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I chose what was low and despised in the world. I did all these things so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the end of it. After he gives us all of these reasons how, why, how God chooses the, the, the things to shame the older, he gives us the reason so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. So the way of the world says to amass this and to do this so that you can make much of yourself. But what Paul reminds us is that each one of us, when we die, are going to have to stand before a holy God and give an account of our lives. And some are going to go to him and they're going to say, say, God, look at all. I, do you see how many followers I had? Do you see how much money I had in the bank? I did all of these amazing things. I have everyone on earth loved me. I was adored. People followed me. If I put my part of my heart hair to the left, they parted their hair to the left. If I parted my heart hair down the middle, they parted. If I gave myself a mohawk, they mohawked themselves. Like people followed me. And you know what God's going to say? Depart from me, you evildoer. But the one that stands before God, that comes to him, says, God, I've got nothing. All I've got is my sin. All I've got is my shame. And, and really, all I've got is Jesus. Like, I, I did all this bad stuff. I sinned. I stole. I, I coveted. I did all this. But Jesus, you told me that Jesus lived a life I couldn't and died the death that I deserve. And if I have him and if he, like I need him, he's my only hope. And Jesus or God will say, yep, you're right. That's why I sent him. 
I sent him to forgive you of your sins. I sent him to cover you from all of your shame. I sent him, and because of your faith in him, come on in, my young child. Enter into your father's joy, into your father's rest. See, there's no boasting when you get there. There's no boasting. You can't boast in what you've done. All you've done is sinful. All you've done is rebelled. All you've done is is shook your fist at God and saying, God, I don't need you. And yet God has sent his son for us so that we might boast not in ourselves, but boast in him and in him alone. Whenever humanity moves into a place where they trust themselves over trusting God, the result always ends in sin and death. So when we come to the reality of our salvation, we must remember that we bring nothing to the table. You you contribute nothing to your salvation. But it's what God has done in you. It is his calling on your life. It is he who called you out of darkness into the light. It is he that took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. It is he who has done all of those things. So when we recognize whom God saves, it's not the prideful, it's not the boastful, it's the weak, it's the humble. Then we're in a position to be able to hear the message of Jesus and respond to the message of Jesus. So next, not only do we understand whom God saves, let's consider how God saves. Look with me in verse 30. And he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it was written, let no one who boasts boast in, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so what Paul is here highlighting is the sovereign grace of God that is emphasizing that everything is different because of him. Do you see that? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of you. It's not because of what you thought. It's not about what you did, but it's in whom Jesus, uh, what Jesus accomplished. It's because of his work on the cross. It's because of his life, his death, and his resurrection that we are able to have salvation. So what Paul is reminding the believers here is what they didn't have in the world, that they didn't have wealth, status, or power. He now reminds them of what they now have in Christ. That the, the benefits of Christ far outweigh the benefits of this world. That if all you have in this world is Christ, then you have enough. That you have all that you need because Christ is enough. And then Paul gives us three things that, that Christ has done for us by by coming to earth and living a perfect life and going to a cross to die in our place, there are three things that God, that God now gives us through faith in Christ. The first one we see is righteousness. And this word righteousness is a legal word that means right standing. So in essence, we don't actually do the right work, but when we stand before God, it's God looks at the work of Christ. The Bible tells us that Christ's righteousness is imparted to us. So we do the sin, we do all the bad stuff, and we do all the painful stuff, and yet when we believe in Christ, at that moment, the righteousness of Christ, the right working of Christ becomes our work. And God no longer sees what we've done, but what sees what Christ has done, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, that in every way that we were rebellious, that Christ was obedient and he did the work. So we become 
righteous. We now have the righteousness of God. The second thing is sanctification. So not only do we have the right standing before God, but now we have been set apart for God. Through Christ, we have this sanctification. Now it's this process that God is working in our hearts so that we become less and less like our old selves and more and more like God. Or more and more, more readily, more and more like Jesus in obedience, in holiness, and trying to live the ways of God. We now have that power living inside of us. So we have righteousness, we have sanctification, and third, we have redemption. This is a, a, a term um, being of being bought back. So it's almost as though when we were born, we're born into slavery to sin. We have no ability to get ourselves out of that. But because Jesus has come and he died on a cross and rose from the dead, he has now bought us back from slavery. So he has paid the price to redeem us from being slaves so that we could be free. And so now we have this redemption. All of these things that Christ has done for us come through our faith and trust in Jesus. Though these are afforded everyone, everyone has availability to be saved by Christ, but we only get to receive this blessing through faith, and it's through the calling that God has placed on our lives. So what Paul is trying to help us understand at the bottom line is that we are called to boast, not in our own power, not in our own abilities, but we're called to boast in God's wisdom and power that it is his work on our behalf that we get a chance to feel the blessings of. Let me give you an example of, of this idea of boasting. Uh, several years ago, it was before we actually moved uh, back to Michigan from Delaware, I brought my family um, here. We went up north and we spent some time on the, uh, near the Sleeping Bear Dunes. And we had the wonderful idea, I said, like Leah was like, I don't know, seven, maybe six. She was really young. And we had this idea that we were going to walk from the park to Lake Michigan and back, which was a, a good idea. Some of you are chuckling because you know. It's like two miles, right? I walk two miles all the time. I run two My kids bike. Like, at that time, they were biking like 10, 12 miles a week. I mean, it was no big deal. So we're like, yeah, let's just go. And so we start walking. We get from the car. We go up the first dune. We're like, oh, that's right. You can almost see Lake Michigan from there. And so we started walking. We're, we're like an hour and a half in. We're nowhere near Lake Michigan because those dunes, like that sand is shifting underneath your feet. It was hot. It was like 95 degrees that day. We're getting, we're getting out there and we finally get almost halfway, about an hour and a half in, and the kids are exhausted. The kids are just shot. They're like, Dad, I can't take another step. And we didn't bring any water with us. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting some amens down here. We got to a place where things started to feel very desperate. Like, like Leah wasn't at a place where she could walk. She's like, dad, you got to carry me. So I've got Leah on my shoulders like this, climbing up the sand dunes and I'm dying, Sarah's dying. And we were just exhausted. So we sat down for a moment, looking around. No one's around for miles around. We're all alone. And Sarah and I just for a second make that glance and we're like, things are not okay. Like we, we can't go back. Right. And we can't go forward. We're kind of stuck because we're in the position where like we are in desperation. And after the kids, we, we did a good job not sharing that with the kids. But we knew in our hearts like it was this was bad news. And then uh, it was just getting hotter in the day. And like almost at that moment of absolute desperation, we look down and there's this guy walking up the dune. He had come from Lake Michigan and 
Sarah like looks at the guy and I look at the guy and we're like, do you have any water? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. He puts his back down. He's like, here's water for you, water for you, water for you, water for you. And in that moment, we were saved, right? We were about to die and then we were saved and, and we had exactly what we needed. So we made it all the way to Lake Michigan. We made like a little rock pile. We drew in the sand there, took some pictures, had a good time, posted them on Instagram. And then we walked all the way back and we were able to do that because we had what we needed, And, you know, I tell you that story because when you tell a story like that, who gets the praise? Right. All I can say is I was stupid. I was dumb. I was ill prepared for the journey that laid ahead. And I almost got my family to certain death because I was dumb. But who's the hero of that story? The guy with the water. Right. He's the hero. He's the one that had what I didn't have and can do what I couldn't do on my own. He stepped in and he saved. I don't even know the guy's name, but I'll tell you what, that guy's a hero for he saved my family in a greater way. When we think about what Jesus has done, Jesus is the hero. And when we think about our salvation and we think about the opportunity to have peace with God, we have to know that it doesn't come from us. So the beauty of the story is not boasting in you. The beauty of the story is boasting in what Christ has done. I am who I am because of what he has done. He is great. He is mighty. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is the one that gives me an opportunity to mess up every single day And I have hope, knowing that my love, that his love for me will never go away. And it's because of what he has done. Maybe you're here this morning and you're at a place where you're just kind of questioning everything. And maybe today you're beginning to kind of think you could consider Christ. Well, I want to encourage you in that journey. Christ is what you're seeking. Christ is what you need. And if you want to know more about him, you can come grab me in a lobby after service and say, I want to know more about Jesus. But simply the Bible tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this idea of calling on the name of the Lord is letting go of just saying, Lord, here's all of my mess. I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And when you do that, all the promises of scripture become ours. Or maybe you're here and you are a believer But you've allowed the influences of the world to change the direction of your life. And so if you're really honest with yourself, if you're really honest with yourself, you know today that what you're chasing after is not leading you towards God. What you're chasing after is leading you after the things that the world calls successful. And if that's you, I want to encourage you just to repent of it. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for what I've done and forgive me for the direction that I'm on. Let me be reminded that I'm supposed to chase after you. And here's another thing, and then I'll close. The call to follow Christ begins in weakness. It begins in our own weakness. But the call of Christ on our lives is not to just blondness. Right? God doesn't want you to come and follow him and die to yourself so that you can just live this mediocre life. That's not what you're called to. You're not just called to a moral life. When you, the call to come and die is the call to come and die so that God can lift your head and use you as an instrument. 
The call to follow Christ is the call to greatness. It's not the call to the mundane. It's the call to be great, not in our own sight, but in the sight of God so that you can become a great, doc, a great Christian doctor, so that you can become a great sanitation specialist, so that you can become a great parent, so that you can become a great child, so that you can become great in the sight of God that comes through our own surrender. And the, surrender, the more you surrender, the more greatness that God has for himself through you. Would you give yourself to the Lord that fully to say, Lord, here is my life. Use it however you choose. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. Father, we realize that we live in a world that is seeking to influence us in so many ways that wants to speak into where life, peace, hope, and security come. But we know, we know that those are only found in Christ. But Father, I pray that today that you'd help what we know to be true to become practically true. Father, I pray today that we would reject the things of this world, that the things that say we're supposed to be great in, that we would reject and seek to just trust in you fully. I pray for the one that's here today that doesn't know you yet. I pray today that in this moment your spirit would call to them and they would, they would realize that you're standing there ready to accept them ready to give them peace, ready to give them grace. And Father, I pray that as we sing this song, this song would truly be not only our anthem, but that it would be our resolve to fully live surrendered lives before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.